0: We'll just jump into our study in Galatians chapter five. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be starting around verse 19. And the Bible tells us that every person, every single one of us is born separated from God. We are born outside of a relationship with God. In fact, the scriptures tell us that we don't even naturally seek God out. We don't even naturally desire God. Rather, we're born as sinners and we're born under the control of our sin nature, which the Bible calls our flesh. And our flesh has one main motivation and it's selfishness. It's a serious problem. We have this selfish force inside of us motivating us and controlling us from birth. But as people, we don't like the idea that our problems as individuals and as a society might be coming from within us. So we perpetually look to external factors to which we can apply blame for all the problems in our own lives and in our society. We'll blame our parents, Our childhood experiences, people who didn't believe in us, the politics of where we live, the government not doing enough for us, and on and on and on the list goes. But blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who looks in the mirror and recognizes their own sin nature as the true source of the emotional, spiritual, and relational destruction in their life. They're blessed because that person is on their way to understanding that we can never be our own solution if we are also our own greatest problem. We need help from an outside source. We need Jesus. And Paul has just finished explaining that when we place our faith in Jesus, we become spiritually reborn. We receive a new spirit, the spirit of God in us. And rather than involuntarily serving our sin nature like a slave, we can now choose to serve the spirit of God instead. But there's a war going on in us between our flesh and the spirit. They want opposite things. My flesh wants to please my lusts, while the spirit wants to please God. The flesh wants temporary pleasure, while the spirit wants eternal reward. My flesh is motivated by selfish desires, the spirit is motivated by love. And Paul's exhortation last week was simply, choose to walk in the spirit. This week, Paul is gonna present us with two lists of attitudes and behaviors. One list is going to describe what the flesh produces in your life, while the other list will describe what the spirit produces in your life. And when we look at these two lists side by side, We should quickly draw the conclusion that we would much rather have a life full of the things that the spirit produces than the things that the flesh produces. This is the most serious type of personality quiz that we could ever take. If you're into that sort of thing, if you're someone who loves to hop on Facebook and find out what kind of kitchen appliance you are according to a quiz, you're gonna to enjoy today's message especially. I would encourage you to take these two lists seriously and to use them to both encourage but also to evaluate yourself. To ask yourself whether the evidence in your life points to a life controlled by the flesh or controlled by the Spirit. So let's jump in. Chapter 5, verse 19 of Galatians, pen in hand here. Now, the works, underline the word works, the works of the flesh are evident. That means they're obvious which are, now these attitudes and behaviors that he's about to list are gonna fall into three main categories. Sex, religion, and human relationships, and I put which one falls in each of those categories on your outline, and so we're gonna begin with what types of attitudes and behaviors the flesh stirs up sexually. It says adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, and your Bible might use some other terms there. Because the flesh is driven by selfishness, All it makes me care about is what makes me feel good right now. The flesh doesn't care how my actions affect anybody else. It just cares about me. So if that means cheating on my spouse, my flesh doesn't care about the pain that betrayal will cause them or my family. My flesh doesn't care. And that's what the flesh does to our thinking the flesh minimizes or completely obscures the long-term natural consequences and gets us to focus entirely on the immediacy of the pleasure. So instead of thinking about how this thing is gonna play out in the long-term, the flesh says, let's oh, that's, that's not think about that. That's, that's not important. All that matters is what you could do right now, the opportunity you have right now, how good it's gonna feel right now. And you know, it's amazing when you find yourself being tempted in that way, how quickly the temptation fades away when you just begin to play out the natural long-term consequences. Because it's not very sexually exciting to imagine sitting down with your children and telling them that you cheated on their mother or their father or having to tell your parents that or their parents that. Having to deal with the fallout of that, a potential divorce. The shock that's gonna hit people who love you and trust you. You begin thinking about that stuff and things don't seem that exciting. But the flesh tries to say, well, don't, don't, don't think about that stuff. Just think about right now. Fornication is the Greek word parneia from where we get our word pornography. The flesh loves pornography because it provides access to to sexual pleasure without any of the effort that genuine human intimacy requires. So the flesh loves it. It's easier, it requires less work. It just gets straight to the part that I want, so that's great. It's also why pornography is so empty. It reduces human beings, men and women, created in the image of God to subhuman status as they abuse themselves and each other for our pleasure. You see, our society laments and grieves over the scourge of sex trafficking but refuses to confront or even admit or recognize the reality that if the demand for pornography and prostitution and worse did not exist, neither would sex trafficking. Our society doesn't even want to acknowledge that reality that sex trafficking exists because there is a desire to be met in our society. There are customers to be attained and acquired. The appalling devastation caused by our societal sexual sin is right in front of us. The consequences are everywhere, they're obvious, everyone can see them. The whole Me Too movement, again, we think that just came out of nowhere. We don't think that all this abuse of power wasn't the result of sexual sin being accepted as normal. We think there's, there's no connection between things like the normalization of pornography and treating people as objects. There's no connection. The evidence is everywhere, but we refuse to acknowledge that we are actually the cause of all these problems. The Bible's standard for sexual activity is that it should all take place within the bounds of a marriage between a man and a woman. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 19. Any sexual activity outside of that is considered Fornication by the Bible standard. Uncleanness or sensuality, as your Bible might say, just refers to sexually immoral uncleanness in thought, word, or deed. And lewdness refers to brazen sexual immorality, having no shame about one's sexual sins. That's what the flesh produces in the area of sex in a person's life. And then we move on to what the flesh produces in the area of religion, our spiritual life. In verse 20, it says, idolatry. You see, the flesh doesn't lead us to worship God. Instead, it leads us to make idols out of our fleshly desires. So we find something that we believe will fulfill our desires. It could be sex, could be self-esteem, power, fame, a feeling of moral superiority, whatever it is that we really want. We find something that we believe will give us that. A job position, owning a certain home, having a certain car, having a certain kind of spouse or relationship or a certain amount of money. And then we believe that because that will give us what we really want, we make an idol out of it and we begin to worship it as God. And as we talk about last week, our flesh loves to turn even good things into gods, into idols, which can only lead to disappointment because they're not God and they can never fulfill us the way that God can so the flesh loves to drive us towards idolatry and making idols out of things worshiping anything other than god satan really doesn't care what it is just anything other than god interestingly though we find idolatry paired with sorcery or witchcraft as your bible might say the original greek word is pharmakia from where we get our English words like pharmacy and pharmaceutical. And it actually, even in this context, refers to drugs, more specifically to mood and mind-altering drugs. Many ancient religions and occultic practices did and still do rely on specific pharmakia that they believed opened their consciousness to interact with the spiritual dimension. Many groups around the world still believe and practice this. Uh, I know for lots of people I know who aren't believers, they've taken trips to Peru to do things like ayahuasca, which is believed to like open your consciousness to interact with the spiritual world. But even through synthesized compounds like LSD, this is not a new idea, it's a very old idea, pairing hallucinogenic mind and reality altering drugs with pagan worship or seeking a pagan spiritual experience, which is why Paul makes this connection between idolatry and pharmakia. There's also a very literal, as we can see, connection between pagan idol worship and drug use. That's what Paul is talking about here, but without getting into a separate sermon, and I should say we're gonna be moving pretty quick today. Everything we're talking about, there are sermons within sermons within sermons we could do, but we're gonna need to keep moving today. And I just want to acknowledge every time we talk about this sort of stuff that there are legitimate right reasons to use medications that affect your mind. There are cases where our minds have a physical deficiency. They are not producing the same amount of certain chemicals that a healthy human mind does. It's not actually a psychological issue. It's actually a physical issue in the brain. And so through medication, we can fill in that gap in order to get our minds working in a healthy way. That's understandable. That's no different to someone taking thyroid medication because they don't have a thyroid that's producing enough of the chemical that their body needs. It's no different to an older man taking a testosterone supplement or something like that. But what's not okay is when we use medication to dismiss things like anxiety or depression that's being brought about for spiritual and or existential reasons. Here's what I mean. If a person is depressed because they're addicted to a sin that leaves them feeling guilty or ashamed, the answer is not to say, how can I medicate away that guilt and shame? The answer is to repent, to change through the power of the Holy Spirit and take practical steps to walk in the freedom that God calls us to if we're anxious because we refuse to trust God, we refuse to believe his promises, the answer is not medicating that anxiety away, the answer is to trust in the promises of God and refuse to give real estate in our minds to doubt. The non-believer who is depressed by the hopelessness of life, the nihilist is right to feel that way because without God, without the gospel, life is absolutely meaningless. It is, they figured it out. They're actually paying enough attention to the world around them to observe reality that life as they know it is hopeless. But what the flesh does is says, let's keep that away from God. Let's not seek God. Let's not seek a spiritual answer. Let's just medicate that away instead with pharmacia. The spirit says, no, no, no. Let's find hope in Jesus. So there are legitimate reasons to use medication, but medication is a sin. It should not be used. It's a work of the flesh when we're using it to medicate away the things that should be leading us to the Lord. Here's the big deal here. The flesh, when it does that, is using drugs to fake the work of the Spirit. That's what's going on. Instead of actually having real inner peace the flesh says well well, let's create the illusion of peace by tricking your mind instead of having real joy the flesh says "Well, well let's give you the illusion of joy by getting your mind some extra dopamine there won't actually be anything in your life any good reason for you to feel joy but we can synthesize it we can fake it The flesh loves to fake the work of the spirit. How does the flesh affect our attitudes and behavior in our human relationships? Paul says this, he says the flesh stirs up hatred or the word enmities. It refers to hatred or discord between groups of people. We're talking about the source of things like racism, classism, sexism, and other forms of bigotry, much like what was tearing the Galatian church apart. Remember, there were those who were following the law and they were refusing to even associate with those who weren't. It also stirs up contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, that just means losing your temper, impulsive violence, it's, it's the inability to control yourself when a button is pushed. I know we all have those buttons, but those outbursts of wrath mean that there's things that can happen where you just lose all control of yourself and it happens all the more frequently. The flesh also stirs up selfish ambitions, that's the, just the desire to get ahead or enrich yourself at the expense of someone else. Because again, all the flesh cares about is ultimately me. Dissensions, heresies. Heresies are just false teachings about the faith and it's connected to the flesh because people who come up with heresies, people who try to spread false teachings about Christianity are generally doing so for only one reason. They just wanna bring attention to themselves. Look what I've discovered. I mean, most people have missed this. Most people can't see this, but I do. Because I'm better, I'm wiser, I'm, I'm more insightful. I've found something that for some reason faithful Christians have missed for 2,000 years. But I found it, me. I'm the one in a billion person. Man, those apostles who walked with Jesus and wrote the New Testament, Even those guys didn't see this. Most heresies come from people who, whether they realize it or not, they wanna bring attention to themselves. And just as an aside, the classic rule for identifying heresies is this. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. That's a good way to evaluate a heresy. Anytime someone says, I have an entirely new discovery in the scriptures, probably a heresy. 99.9% it's a heresy. Verse 21, he says, it stirs up envy, the wrongful desire to possess something that belongs to someone else. This is one of the tragic ironies of the flesh. You see, the flesh causes you to live for yourself, but it also causes you to constantly want what other people have. So your flesh says, you've got to devote your whole life to enriching yourself, making yourself happy, doing what you want, but you're never able to actually enjoy the things that you have, that the things that you get from living selfishly because what the flesh stirs up in you is this desire for what everybody else has that you don't. J.D. Rockefeller was once asked, How much money is enough money? And he famously got a twinkle in his eye and said, just a little more, just a little more. That's what envy will do to you. It will rob you of the joy of ever being able to enjoy what you actually have because you'll just want what somebody else has. The flesh also stirs up murders, drunkenness, Revelries, drunkenness and revelries are kind of paired together there um, in the original grammar and they just refer to the practice of essentially partying late into the night in a drunken state, uh, out in public or at someone's home with other people and indulging in the kinds of unhealthy behaviors that people do when they're drunk, it's late at night and they're sexually unrestrained people. But the bigger issue Paul's talking about there is that the flesh stirs up this addiction to substances and behaviors that create temporary pleasure. And then he says, and the like. Just means that this is not a complete list. If you're doing something incredibly sinful that's not on the list, you can't be like, sweet, it's not on the list, I can keep doing it. He's saying this is just a sampling to give you enough of a flavor so that you can recognize what the work of the flesh looks like. Then he says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, scary part of the verse coming up here for many people that those who practice, would you underline practice, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul said something similar in his letter to the Ephesians and in his first letter to the Corinthians. And as I said, this verse has troubled many people. Because if you're reading like this whole list of works of the flesh and then Paul says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God and you're like, I'm good. You are so deluded about your level of righteousness, I'm concerned for your mental health. Because any reasonable person is gonna feel a little tinge of discomfort and panic because they're gonna be thinking, there are multiple things on that list that I've done this week. And they're thinking, am I not saved? Am I not in the kingdom of God? Well, a few things. If you've been paying attention to everything else Paul has written thus far in his letter to the Galatians, then here's what you know. You know that there's no way that what Paul is doing here is saying, here's a list of behaviors of works that will earn you salvation, and here's a list of behaviors and works that will earn you damnation. If you think about everything else Paul has said in the letter of Galatians, he's devoted all that space to teaching the exact Opposite of that message, that we're saved rather by faith alone in what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're not saved by anything we do or anything we don't do. Secondly, Paul is referring here to the person who does these things as a lifestyle. The person who does them unrepentantly has no desire to change, no conviction about it. In fact, they justify doing it. Instead of even saying, yes, it is a sin, it is wrong, I'm caught up in this, I'm addicted to this, they'll instead say, I don't think it's even wrong. I think there's no problem with doing this and I'm gonna keep doing it. I'm not sorry at all. I've got plans to do it again next week, got plans to do it again tomorrow night. That's who Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the believer who slips up or messes up. He's not talking about the believer who battles against his or her flesh and sometimes loses. He's not talking about the Christian who feels a conviction and longs to be free of this sin but is still struggling with it. That's not what he's talking about. Write this down. He's referring to the person who does these things habitually and unrepentantly. He's talking about the person who does these things as a lifestyle, justifies them, doesn't think there's anything wrong with them, has no desire to change at all. But listen, don't be dismissive about this. Don't take the approach of, oh, good, I know people who do this more than me, so I guess I'm good. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is still deadly serious. He's saying, here's a list of the attitudes and behaviors that the flesh produces in the life of a person. The flesh and the spirit are at war with each other in you. They desire opposite things. So if you find yourself identifying with loving the things of the flesh, you find yourself embracing the things of the flesh and not wanting to change, you need to ask yourself if you've really been born again. Because one of the great evidences of salvation is that we desire the things of God. While we can't walk in them perfectly, we we want to. There's a change in appetites. So Paul says, if if there's none of that in your life, if you don't desire the things of God, you, you desire more the things of the flesh, then you should examine yourself and say, have I really received the spirit of God? Don't play games, says Paul, because you don't want to be left out of the kingdom of God. And we're going to be able to evaluate ourselves more deeply in a minute because Paul's going to lay out the attitudes and behaviors that the spirit produces in our lives. And this will let us compare the two lists, the flesh and the spirit, and evaluate which one we love, which one we're pursuing. Paul's not being legalistic here. He's not being unnecessarily heavy or judgmental. What he's doing is he's saying, I love you Galatians too much to let you be confused about it there would be nothing less loving than to let you think you're saved when you're not. How awful would it be of me to do that? How could I claim to love you and do that? I would also say this. This is where we can really see that Paul's letter to the Galatians lines up with the letter of James in the Bible. A lot of people see the conflict there because Paul is saved by grace alone all over Galatians and then the book of James is Faith without works is dead. And so people would say well these books seem to be saying different things but they say the exact same thing and right here this verse in Galatians 5 is where Paul brings them into harmony because Paul is saying if there's no fruit of the Spirit in your life but you love and pursue the works of the flesh, why would you think you're saved? Paul is saying the same things that James is. If there's no evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you, none at all. Why would you think the Holy Spirit is in you? What would be your reason for believing that you're born again? Again, Paul just loves us too much to let us be confused or deceive ourselves about our spiritual state. Now just a quick side note, again, could do a whole sermon, but I won't. Isn't it interesting to notice when you look at that list that God doesn't distinguish between sins the way that we do? He just has a list, and God views selfish ambition or envy as being as detestable as the most shocking sexual sins. Now here's where we need to be real. For us, and on the earth, all sins do not have equal consequences. Cheating on your spouse is not going to have the same consequence as being jealous of somebody's car. They're gonna produce very different consequences in your life. But from the perspective of God, they're equally detestable. They're equally detestable. And I just point that out so that we all understand when we say we're all sinners under God, that's what we're talking about. God isn't like, that's a really bad sinner, but you're a not so bad sinner. That's not, a, it, it's all detestable to him. We're all guilty outside of the grace of God. Now on the flip side, here's what the Spirit produces in our lives. If you wanna know what a person's life looks like when they're completely surrendered to being led by the Spirit, just look at the life of the most Spirit-filled person who ever walked the earth, Jesus. It says in verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit, would you underline the fruit of the spirit? Again, another little sermon in and of itself. I won't preach it, but I want you to look back real quick at verse 19. It said, now the, the what of the flesh are evident? The, the works, that's right, the works of the flesh are evident, but what does it say here in verse 22? But the what of the spirit? The fruit of the spirit. You see, the flesh produces works. These are actions that are manufactured by your own effort and energy. They wear you out because you have to stir it all up. But the spirit is different. Spirit doesn't produce works, the spirit produces fruit. The natural byproduct that grows, that happens on its own as a result of being deeply rooted in relationship with Jesus. They're naturally produced. We produce works but the spirit causes us to naturally bear fruit. So write this down. We produce works of the flesh, but God produces fruit of the spirit. God produces fruit of the spirit. That's why it's so exhausting to live in the flesh. So he goes on and he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, underline is love. You might have heard me talk about this before, but the way this is meant to be read in the original Greek is that there is one fruit of the spirit, and that fruit is love. And everything else that follows here in this verse is a description of what love looks like practically, how it manifests in our lives. And it's the form of love known in Greek as agape. You might know there's multiple different words in Greek for love, which is so much better than what we have in English. We just have one word for I love my spouse, and then we have the same word love for how we feel about french fries. In Greek they have something a little bit better which is different kinds of love. They have brotherly love, they have sexual love, they have agape love, they have all these different kinds of love and this is the form of love known as agape. It's not just a feeling, it's not an emotional love, it's a conscious decision kind of love. It's a love that seeks the good of its target above itself. It's a sacrificial love. It's a serving love. And in Romans 5.8, Paul wrote about agape. These verses will be on your outline when Paul said, God demonstrates his own love, his own agape toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for us. That's agape. Jesus spoke of it when he famously said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's agape. But it doesn't just present itself in matters of life and death. It serves others in daily life. That's why the apostle John wrote, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So John says that this love, agape, that serves others, that loves others at the cost of oneself, it's not in you if you have no love for anyone else. It's one of the defining character traits of the believer. Also in Romans 5, Paul said the love of God, the agape of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is the kind of love for God and for other people that the Holy Spirit pours into our lives. And Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love, if you have agape for one another. So here's what that biblical love, that agape looks like practically. This is what the Holy Spirit is trying to grow and develop in all of us. Firstly, joy, joy. This is not the feeling of pleasantness that we get when everything in life comes together, when we scratch off a winning lottery ticket. That's not what this is. Joy is the deep down happiness that comes from knowing Everything is right between you and God. He loves you. He's with you. He's for you. He's got good plans for you. That's what this kind of joy is. And we have this joy, but it's interesting. We're told in scripture again and again and again to activate this joy, to stand in it. And how do we do that? We do that by rejoicing, rejoicing by praising God, by thanking God, by recalling his promises, by thanking him for them. This is how we stand in, this is how we operate in the joy of the Lord that we have in Jesus. If you're not feeling the joy of the Lord, the Bible's counsel to you would be then you need to rejoice in the Lord. You need to rejoice and you will have that experience of joy. Then it says peace. So if joy is the act of feeling of happiness from being right with God, then peace refers to the tranquility of knowing that you're right with God, knowing that the most important things in life are taken care of as far as you and God are concerned. Like joy, it has nothing to do with your circumstances, which is why in his letter to the Philippians, Paul commanded them to be anxious for nothing. He said, don't be anxious about anything. Be full of the peace of the Lord. Then we get this great word, long-suffering. If your Bible says patience, you should write the word long-suffering. It's the King James word for patience and I like it more because it's so vivid. What is patience? It's long-suffering. It's the ability to endure something difficult for a long time, not just to endure it, but with grace and with a godly attitude. If you're grumbling the whole way, you're not being patient. That's not long-suffering. That's like poor suffering or bad suffering or something like that. Long suffering is being patient with circumstances, also being patient with people. There are many ways to grow in long suffering. You can get married and have children. That's a great way, great way to grow in long suffering. It's just gonna happen. The Lord's gonna do something and he's gonna use you to to do it in your spouse as well. Then he says kindness, kindness, which is being genuinely concerned for other people as the Lord is concerned about you. But I like this definition I found too, that the kindness of the spirit is being so deeply rooted in Christ that you're able to serve people in a way that makes you vulnerable. And I love that. It's saying I get everything I need from my relationship with the Lord, so I'm able to serve people knowing that they might not appreciate it the way my flesh would want them to. Knowing I might not get the response or the gratitude that my flesh would like. True kindness, the kind stirred up by the Holy Spirit, is the kind that serves and loves people to bless God, to be his hands and feet to them, not for what we get back in return. Then it says goodness, this is just integrity, being the same person in every situation. Faithfulness, being loyal, trustworthy, true to your word. Gentleness, which is best thought of as humility. Regarding one's relationship with the Lord, gentleness means being submitted to the will of God in your life and welcoming his work in your life, whatever form it takes, whether it's a good season or a difficult season, a trying season or a season of blessings and comfort. Humility before God means accepting them all equally and saying, God, I trust that you know best. I trust what you're doing in my life and I trust that you're gonna do something good through it. In our relationship to other people, gentleness means being teachable, it means being considerate, but most of all, it means being willing to follow the example of Jesus and serve others humbly as he took up the towel and washed the feet of his disciples. It means living like we actually understand what Jesus said, that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. And then he says self-control, finally, self-control. That's just choosing to be led by the spirit instead of the flesh. In those moments when the flesh wants to rise up really, really fast, your flesh is like, I'm taking over the steering wheel. Self control is the ability to say no. No, the spirit is still in control. It's about not having one's life controlled by impulsivity, including things like the ability to pursue the important over the urgent. When we don't have self-control, we're always responding. We're always reacting to life. We're never in control. We're never setting the agenda for the day. We're never being intentional. Again, it could be a whole other sermon, but the Spirit, as you think about this, the Spirit sets us free by giving us the power to be disciplined. And this is something our society struggles to understand. Instead of being ruled by our emotions and our lusts, The Spirit gives us the power to actually be intentional about how we live and about how we react to life. The Spirit lets us choose. Rather than life happening to us, the self-control that the Holy Spirit gives us gives us the freedom to actually choose how we respond. they are expressions of real freedom, self-control and discipline, so write this down. Self-control is the freedom to be intentional about how we live and react to life. Person who has no control over their emotions, who just overreacts to things all the time, that's not freedom, that's not freedom at all. But the Spirit gives us self-control so that we're not ruled by our emotions or impulses. And then he says, against such there is no law. And the point Paul is making there is that When you're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit is gonna cause you to live in a life-giving way, to love God and to love people. And so if you're walking in the Spirit, you have no need for the law, or, or for any laws under that matter. Laws exist to direct and restrain people who desire to live in a way that is harmful to themselves or others takes advantage of others, enriches themselves at the expense of others. But those walking in the Spirit are just gonna be walking in love. They don't even need laws. They're not gonna do anything that would violate a law. This is what Paul said when he wrote to Timothy. He said, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners. Then verse 24, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know, it's interesting because you you can kill yourself a bunch of different ways. You're like, Jeff, where's this topic going? But you cannot, you cannot crucify yourself. It's physically impossible. I mean, you think about it because you, you nail one hand... But then what are you gonna do with the other hand? You kind of got a problem, right? You cannot crucify yourself. Hopefully you'd be intelligent enough to figure that out before you got into it. Paul explained to the Romans how this works. He said, our old man, our old nature was crucified with him, with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So when Jesus was on the cross, our sin nature, our old man was on the cross with him, being crucified. Therefore, Paul says, reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says, consider your old sin nature to be dead. And if you're honest though, you might go cool, awesome, got it. But we're in a strange place. We're in a very strange place because our sin nature is dead in the sense that Jesus' death on the cross is a completed past event. It's done, yet we're not going to realize the full reality of what happened on the cross until we arrive in the presence of Jesus and receive our new resurrected bodies that are completely free of sin. In the meantime, if you haven't noticed, we're in fallen bodies where we have to battle the flesh even though technically it's already dead. We have total victory over the flesh, but we're not living in that total victory yet. So what does it all mean? It means that in this life we have a choice, moment to moment, day by day, to walk in the spirit or to walk in the flesh. And I think after reading both lists, hopefully we would all say, man, I want a life full of the things that the Spirit produces. That's the life that I want. But this also all means that we can speak to our inner man and say, you know, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to be controlled by my flesh. I'm choosing to be controlled by the Spirit of Jesus because my old nature was crucified with Christ. We're fighting in a war whose result has already been determined. The victory's already been won, but we're still playing out the battle. And the real battle is to live as though that's actually true, that the victory has already been won. We can still choose to be controlled by the flesh, but we don't have to be controlled by the flesh. Paul says in verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Living and walking in the Spirit the way we said it last week, it's just simply saying yes to Jesus over and over and over again. The Spirit tells you to speak or to call or to text. You do it. Spirit tells you to shut up. You do it. Spirit tells you to bring it up. You do it. Spirit tells you to drop it. You do it. Spirit tells you to pray about it or to to pray for them. You do it. The Spirit tells you to give, to not to give, to serve, to rest. You do it. You just say yes to the Spirit. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Just gonna wrap up with some final thoughts on the fruit of the Spirit. Make a note of this on your outline. Firstly, the fruit of the Spirit grows together. The fruit of the Spirit grows together. Here's what I mean by that. God is growing all of that good stuff in your life all the time, all the time. If you have the Spirit of God in you, he's growing that stuff in you. But here's the key. This is how we can deceive ourselves. When it seems like one area, one of those things in that list of fruit of the spirit, when it seems like one area is growing faster than another, the reason is that we have a natural temperament or a skill that we've learned along the way in life that makes us naturally more prone to act that way. But on the spiritual side of things, where the change is real, Everything happens simultaneously. Let me explain this. So John the Apostle, he wrote, I put it on your outlines. He said if someone says I love God and hates his brother, John says he is unbalanced. No, that's not what he says. John says he is, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Because real love is, for the Lord is always accompanied by a love for the Lord's people, a love for the church. That's why John can say this. If they're not both there, neither is there. Some people always seem to be upbeat. They seem to enjoy meeting new people, always quick to say hi to someone who's a visitor, and it's easy for us to look on and say, oh, they must be so full of the joy of the Lord. But if that person is unreliable, incapable of being a good friend, then they're lacking faithfulness. And it's not that they're actually full of the joy of the Lord. They're probably just an extrovert. Some people seem very self-controlled and even-keeled, and we might look at them and say, man, they're such an embodiment of the peace of the Lord. But if they're not kind and gentle with people, they don't actually have the peace of the spirit. They're probably just indifferent or they've got a deep-rooted cynicism about people. The fruit of the spirit grows together and so we have to be very careful not to attribute our own natural characteristics or skills or talents to spiritual growth. We need to be very careful to do that. It's very easy for us to take credit for the things that we're born with and play them off as spiritual characteristics when they're not a result of what the Spirit is doing in our life. They're just gifts that God gave us from birth. When you take your natural personality gifts and skills out of the equation and you evaluate your life and you look at all of that fruit of the Spirit, all the things described there in Galatians 5, you look at them all, does the evidence say that you're walking in the Spirit or the flesh? If you take out the things that you're naturally strong or good at, what does the rest of the picture look like as far as spiritual growth goes? Because the Lord wants good things for you. And the Lord knows that if you're walking in the Spirit, that is the most free, the most liberating, and most fulfilling way to live your life. You're not dependent on anyone or anything else to meet your deepest needs. You're getting them met in the Lord. And God... Wants that for you. I'll also say this write this down fruit grows gradually, grows gradually. And the fruit of the Spirit never seems to grow in us as fast as we would like. I've never been to the small group or the church meeting where, where someone comes in with a testimony and they're like, guys, listen, just great week. Uh, I don't know what's happened, but last month or so, it's like my sanctification has just like tripled in speed. It's just happening unbelievably fast right now and I'm just becoming more like Jesus at such an incredible rate. I mean, if this keeps up, probably a couple of years away from being done, not gonna lie. That's, That's never ever happened. I've never heard anyone say anything even close to that. So here's what I will say. Be sure to celebrate and take note of and rejoice in those moments when you realize that God has been changing you cuz i hope you have some of those every now and then you have a reaction to something or a situation and there's something in you that realizes you know i i wouldn't have responded that way to this in the past i would have been angry i would have been anxious i would have been frustrated and hopefully you have some of those moments where you say man like God's actually doing something in me. He is actually growing me. He is actually changing me. Be sure to thank the Lord in those moments that, that while none of us are who we want to be yet, man, praise God, we're not who we used to be. We're not who we used to be. We're changed because of Jesus. So know that fruit grows gradually. And then lastly, also thank the Lord in faith. Rejoice that, that if you're a believer, fruit is inevitable. Write that down. Fruit is inevitable. It's inevitable. As you focus on being rooted in Christ, connected to Jesus, living life with him, fruit is inevitable. It's not the works of the spirit, it's the fruit of the spirit. God will do it. He will produce it in your life. You can bet your life on it. We're gonna dive into this some more in detail next week. But for now, let's, uh, let's pray. Would you bow your head and, and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for just the encouragement of your word, and just for the, the knowledge that you are growing and doing good things in us, God. You are doing a work in each of us. Lord, whether we feel it day to day or not, if your spirit is in us, if we have put our faith in you, that then you're doing it. You're growing the fruit of the spirit in us gradually. And Father, when we read those lists, it just becomes so clear. It's so easy in day-to-day life to feel like the flesh and the spirit are even forces, but when we see them laid out like that, it's so clear that the life we want is the life full of the fruit of the spirit. The relationships we want are the ones full of the fruit of the spirit. So Lord, I just ask for each of us, if there's any area of the flesh, any work of the flesh that, that is appealing to us or tempting to us right now, would you, by the power of your spirit, and the power of your word just expose it for what it is reveal its worthlessness compared to what you offer when we walk in the spirit lord give us clarity of mind to understand the long-term consequences of the works of the flesh give us wisdom and a spirit of discernment lord Thank you that your word says we have the mind of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us right now for absolute clarity that would cause us to recognize how much better your way is here and now in this life, that we are not choosing something that is lesser in this life for something greater in another life. We are choosing the better thing here and now as well. So, Lord, speak to our spirits. And, God, help us to evaluate our lives honestly, to see whether we're walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh. And if we need to repent, speak to our hearts, Lord. Call us to repentance and help us to do it, Lord. Help us not to play games with our eternal destiny, God. Help us to take this seriously, Lord. And then, Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness, not in any growth that we've stirred up in ourselves, but in, in what you have done in us, that we are not who we were because of the grace of your spirit. So, God, continue your work. Thank you that you promised the day will come when your work in us will be completed. It will be finished. None of us are hopeless projects. You will finish what you started, Lord, and we thank you for that.